to worship with you guys this morning. If this is your first time joining us, uh, way to remember that we're here at 10 a.m. I was, I was waiting for some 9 a.m.ers. They didn't show up. Uh, the 11 a.m.ers will receive them with grace because that's who we are. Uh, speaking of grace, we're going through a brand new sermon series through the book of Galatians called The Gospel of Grace. So if this is kind of your first time uh, in our community, uh, what we like to do is kind of go through books of the Bible and in some places, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And, and what we like to do is, is sort of plan ourselves in the ancient scriptures and see how they intersect with our modern life. Uh, though the scriptures are ancient, they are alive and they are active. And there's a lot to be um, unpacked in this word that influences how we follow Jesus and, and how we are formed as disciples of Jesus. And so what's so good about the book of Galatians is that it's a short chapter that, that brings us face to face with the gospel the good news of what God has done for us and made available for us in the person of Christ. And this book is really important because it answers uh, very important questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Some of the questions that we'll be answering over the next few weeks is, well, what are, what are the prerequisites to be a follower of Christ? Are there any? Uh, what, what do I need to, to do to become a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to experience true freedom? Uh, is freedom the, the, the absence of, uh, of these pains and, and, and distractions and sort of things that I'm disillusioned with? Or is it the presence of other things? Or is it the presence of Jesus, as we'll come to find out? What does it look like to walk in victory over sin? What does it look like to walk in victory over the temptations that we're faced with every single day and that we give ourselves into? And most importantly, a question that we don't ask ourselves too often is, what happens when we believe the wrong things about God? What does our life look like when we willingly choose to live in such a way that God has called us not to live and we willingly choose to believe the wrong things about God? What happens when the wrong things about God get inside of us and then begin to influence the way that we live? We'll be answering these questions. We'll see subjects covered like the gospel, grace, and freedom, all of which we'll cover in depth uh, over the next uh, few weeks, maybe month. I don't know. We'll just see how the Lord leads us in this one. Uh, but this morning, we're going to start at the beginning because uh, Paul has a lot to say in this short introduction that Danielle just read. And we're going to read it all over again just so we can look at this together. So uh, we love to look at the Word of God. So if you need a Bible or if you don't have a Bible, if you want to just quickly shoot up your hand, my man Zach is going to put a Bible in your hand. And that is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible or if you need a Bible this morning, uh, you can have that and take it home with you and study it. One more awkward request. Anybody need a Bible? All right, we're good. Uh, if, if you want to look at the screen with me or in your own uh, book, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're taking notes, we're going to uh, be unpacking these two points. It's going to frame today's message. The first is rescued from, and the second is rescued for. Rescued from, rescued for. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we praise you for this uh, Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate and gather uh, as we remember that Jesus rose from the dead and has made available this life for us. 
Lord, thank you for this community. Thank you for this time. Uh, Lord, for hearts that are seeking and wanting to know more about Jesus, I pray that they would uh, be encountered by your grace and presence. For weary hearts that are distracted, distraught, or tired, I pray that you would refresh us. And most importantly, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive this word and that this word would take root in our heart and grow and uh, bring about much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. So we're going to look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead. So Paul is a church-planting missionary, and this is how he, he begins his letter. And, and notice what he does. Look at how he identifies himself and, and where he draws his authority. He doesn't have a, a QR code that's linked to his LinkedIn page. He doesn't have a resume. He just says, I am identified through Jesus Christ and God the the father who raised him from the dead. And what is he, what, what he's saying is that his authority, his uh, identity isn't found in what other people think about him, isn't found in what others are saying about him. It's solely found and rooted in who God is and what uh, Jesus has done for him. And we know this to be true because Paul speaks like this in other places of the scripture. Uh, for example, uh, a primary example is Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul found his identity, his worth, his value, his authority, his power in the resurrected Jesus. Now, this is important because last week we, we celebrated Easter, the story of Jesus' resurrection, his victorious defeat over sin and death and the new life and the new relationship that is made available through faith in Christ. And as we said last week, the most profound evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is not necessarily all of the facts and the evidence that are in favor of the resurrection. It's not the, the verified empty tomb and the records that we have from Joseph of Arimathea. It's not necessarily the fact that, that this testimony was brought forth by women, and that's important. It's not necessarily the fact that the tomb is empty and it was never enshrined. And historically, there's a lot of evidence that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. All of that is awesome. But the most profound evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the transformation of human beings. And what's so important about this is that history is meant to inform. History rarely transforms a person from the inside out. And the reason why this is important is because, believe it or not, we're not really evidence-based creatures. We're love-based creatures. And as much as we love to say that we're black and white and truth and fact and all those things, and that's how we dictate and live our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't live our lives gathering and, and spectating and observing all the evidence. We're compelled and moved by love. And what's important about this is that the reason we believe is not because we're evidence-based creatures, it's because we're love-based creatures. It wasn't your black and white, logical, factual, historical, evidence-based thinking that made you fall in love with your husband or wife. It wasn't after examining the historical fact-based evidence that this is truly your newborn baby that you said, I love you. 
It wasn't the evidence for your niece or nephew actually being in your family that compelled you to love them. It wasn't the facts about that special loved one in your life that compelled you to love them. The facts and the evidence are great. Hear me, church. We need them. Uh, We must study to show ourselves approved. But one thing that the scripture makes abundantly clear is that our experience of love is the result of first being loved by God. And this is the testimony that we find more often than not in the scriptures for transformation, for new life springing forth. It's not because the evidence weighed in our favor. It's because the love and grace of God took over and we responded in love. The reason I point this out is because Paul, the church planting missionary, isn't risking his life because the evidence was good and it was. Rather, he's firsthand had an encounter with love and grace. We see this story in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. But Saul, uh, in this ancient culture, it was common to have dual names. Uh, Another name for Saul, for Paul, was Saul. Uh, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, the way this begins doesn't really start the way we just read the other thing. Like, he's over, uh, he's infatuated with Jesus. Grace and peace to you. I love you. He's delivered us from the evil age. But clearly, we see a guy here inflicting evil upon disciples of Jesus. What happened? Well, Paul, a great high priest, Jewish priest, Pharisee, opposed the way of Jesus. We have a a countercultural group that's rising up and taking the city by storm and introducing these upside down values like loving your neighbor and serving the least of these. And everybody can be a part of the family of God through faith and Jesus. And the way of Jesus is tearing down these racial barriers that were propped up in the society. The way of Jesus is creating this inclusive, uh, harmonious family that's not based in our collective uh, agreements, but rather being unified in Christ. And he wanted to end this movement, and so he goes to the synagogue and he asks for special permission to uh, persecute anybody belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, is Saul literally persecuting Jesus? Like, is is the resurrected Jesus experiencing his afflictions? The answer is yes. Because we are the body of Christ. And whenever you persecute a member of that body, you are persecuting the living Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my brothers and sisters and followers? But rise, verse 6, and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Here's what happens next. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord set them in the vision. Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Good response. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision you. He's seen you, Ananias, coming in, laying your hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered him, Lord, I I've heard many about this man, 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. The fact that Ananias would talk back to the Lord and say, are you sure about this, really indicates the type of reputation that Saul had. A violent man, an aggressive man, persecuting the early church. And Ananias' hesitation was more for concern out of his own life. What if this thing flips on me, and now I'm suffering and afflicted because of it? Verse 14, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, Ananias said. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Let's pause there and consider how scandalous the grace of God is. Because all we know about Saul up until this point is that he's violently persecuting the church and his resume, his testimony is violent man, inflicting violence, no good, hates the church. And then he jumps and God says, that's my chosen instrument. Church, that's, that's grace. It wasn't that Saul had to work his way into being uh, the well-studious, Christ-loving Paul. It's that God beforehand saw this man and called him into his family, not because of who he is, but solely for God's purposes and because he can do that. Be reminded this morning, church, that when God calls you into faith in Christ, he looks at you the same way. You are my chosen instrument. You are mine. You belong in my family. And though the beginning of the paragraph might say, oh, well, you did this and you did, all of that is pushed to the side and grace takes over and it's solely God calling you and affirming you in who he is and what he's done for you in Christ. He's my chosen instrument. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I love this. This this detail I'm about to share isn't important, but I just think it's so cool how they're on the same page. Why? Because it's God speaking to the same God speaking to each person. It's not like Ananias said, I got on Twitter and I heard you got knocked out on the road. And I just felt compelled to come pray for you. No, it's that God spoke to Paul, Ananias, uh, God spoke to Ananias, linked them together. And there's this crazy, sacred, authoritative moment happening here. I believe it's that feeling like, whoa, this is really God. This is really him. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was in the synagogue. uh, He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. I'm drawing attention to this because it's important. At the beginning, he was persecuting the son of God. And now just a few verses later, he's identifying with the son of God. And the reason why this is so important is verse 21. All who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem on those who called upon his name? Isn't the reason why he's here so that he could bring us bound and persecute us before the chief priest? And Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is Paul's testimony. New life springing forth because love and grace took over after encountering Christ. 
New life springing forth, not because Paul was on his donkey and after considering the, the Messianic promises and the Mosaic law, can finally figured out, oh, Jesus is the Christ. No, it was an encounter with the living Christ, experiencing his love, making his heart well up with so much joy that he began to love God back. That is our testimony, church. So radically transformed that he commits the rest of his life to being a messenger of the good news. So radically transformed that he says things like, I, I consider my life worth nothing in the sense that all the persecution and all the suffering and all the affliction that I might experience is worth it because I'm, I'm tasting in the suffering with Christ and he'll raise me up to victory with him. This is the good news that Paul experienced, new life with Jesus that wasn't on the other side of uh, perfect moral obedience, that wasn't on the other side of him trying to justify himself and prove that he is worthy and acceptable, just the grace of God. God saying that person radically encountering him and then a new life springing forth. Jesus taking over and calming the heart that's raging with sin. This is why Paul says in verse 2 and 4, Grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The only people uh, in the scriptures that give grace and that give peace is God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace is a gift that only God can give. And it's a gift that we can receive because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age, according to the will of our God and Father. So look at that word, deliver, with me. In verse 4. Uh, other translations use, use the word rescue. When we examine that word, deliver, it means two things. It means rescue and set free. To be delivered means to be rescued and set free. And this is what makes Christianity so distinct from other religions and other worldviews, is the fact that Jesus comes to rescue and set us free. You see, most founders of, of religions and worldviews primarily do one thing. They teach. Uh, teach you how to live and, and instruct you in how to live so that you can navigate this world with the best sort of tools uh, to, to, to have whatever desired outcome you want. Here, I'm going to teach you how to be healthy. Go be healthy and you'll be happy. I'm going to teach you how to overcome conflict and anxiety and depression and then you'll have a high quality of life. Jesus comes to teach, but he's also much more than that. He's our savior. In that, he comes as our great deliverer, our great rescuer, to rescue us and to set us free. So what are we rescued and set free from? The first is sin. Uh, this, this mechanism of, of disobedience that's at work in us, that's, that's plagued our human condition. That has not only tainted our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another and our relationship with the world. And instead of living towards the throne of God, we begin to live inwardly. And instead of creating a world of flourishing where we thrive and creation thrive and our family thrive, uh, the testimony that we're most familiar with is a sense of brokenness, a sense of disconnection. And sin has incredible ramifications because it's producing a quality of life called death. And so instead of experiencing life, we're experiencing death, physical death that awaits us all, as we said last week, is our enemy, but also that quality of life where we feel like, man, there's so much more for us, but, but we're dying, disconnected, addicted, broken. So he comes and he rescues us from this mechanism of sin, but he also sets us free. 
He rescues us from the penalty of sin, which is death, but he sets us free from the power of sin. And, and when Jesus comes back, he's going to set us free from the presence of sin once and for all as we live in a creation that isn't marred by sin. He sets us free from the present evil age, the sinful mechanisms at work in the world that once before Christ would keep us oppressed and in bondage. We can now experience power and walk in freedom. And so why do we need to be rescued and why do we need to be set free? Because the scriptures make it abundantly clear that we're helpless and lost. And no matter how hard we try to rescue ourselves and see our way through uh, the thick jungle of the world that we live in, we we find ourselves empty. I was listening to this awesome documentary about... um, uh, you're going to make fun of me, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, how they speculate that there's still dinosaurs in the Congo because uh, it's so uh, jungleless and there's parts of the Congo that are still uninhabited and it's just really hard to get to. And so two adventurers try to go uh, find this dinosaur. And uh, they go on a three-week-long journey, and they never make it outside a one-mile perimeter from where they started. And they lose 90 pounds, and they're lost, and they have to radio in for help. And it's this idea like the road was right there. You just couldn't see it because it's, it, it, it's so dark and covered and it's distracting and, and, you, and it's disorienting. And that's the way that sin is in our life is that it gives us the illusion that we're, we're holding this light, this torch that gives us control and is illuminating our lives. But really, we're just walking in circles lost. And no matter how hard we try to swim to the shore, we only end up further away and we're tired and there's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. And good teaching is not enough to rescue us. Like, hey, become a better swimmer because that's not going to get you any farther. And a map for how to navigate this life isn't going to work because that map is broken. And God in his great love and his great kindness comes and steps into the darkness of our world as the light of the world meets us where we are and shows us how to live, rescues us from this mechanism of sin and completely removes us and transfers us to his kingdom. So that now the oppressive forces of power that once dominated us and controlled us, we can walk in victory over. And how does he do this? How does Jesus rescue us and set us free? Paul says he gave himself for our sins. The beautiful exchange. Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world, our sins. And he dies and he rises from the dead, defeating the power of sin and and claiming victory over death so that all who place faith in Jesus can get his life as we give him our sins. And for this, he says, grace and peace. But it, it gets so much better. Remember, we're not just rescued, we're set free. So, so we're rescued from the sinful mechanism that's at work in us. And, and one thing that's beautiful that, that Paul shows us that we just saw in the beginning is, is that we're rescued from finding identity in other people. Paul, an apostle, not through other men, but through God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. The good news of the kingdom of God is that you're rescued from trying to find approval and identity in other people. Why? Because all of the identity and all the approval that you'll ever need and ever crave can be found in Christ and him filling your heart with his spirit and satisfying you in such a way that dressing a certain way, looking a certain way, acting a certain way for a group of people that's temporary can never satisfy you. Free from trying to find love in a thousand different places only to come up empty. Free from the endless attempts to rescue yourself, you can now rest. 
one theologian says it's Jesus plus nothing. And that's everything. That's all you need. Not Jesus plus your, your best effort. Not Jesus plus your best attitude. Not Jesus plus your best resume. Not Jesus plus your best Sunday morning. Just Jesus. And him rescuing you, redeeming you, saving you. So, so we are rescued from sin and from this present evil age. What are we rescued for? Let's look at verse 1 through 4 again. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So the Greek word that would have been used here for brothers signifies both brothers and sisters. And it refers to both the men and women. And when Paul says churches, that's the communities of faith in this specific region. This letter is unique because he's not just writing to one city and one congregation. He's writing to this really broad region the size of Turkey and saying, all of you guys, this is for you. Now, we're rescued from sin and we're rescued from this evil age. What are we rescued for? We're rescued and set free for family, for community, for finding life with the brothers and the sisters, the community of faith. We're rescued to experience this new quality of life, this new universal family that God calls the church. We're we're tasting it a little bit here. We're not unified by our blood, but by his blood. And we come together, not because of our agreements or, or, or separate because of our differences, but we're slowly being united and grafted into Jesus. It says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're rescued for relationship with God. We're rescued and set free to experience what we once had in the beginning and we lost because of sin. We're rescued to walk in union, eternal union with God that isn't dictated by our efforts or performance or our best ability to keep obedience, but through faith in Jesus and his spirit dwelling inside of this temple, we can have access to God 24-7. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen, rescued for God's glory. Rescue to live in such a life where we worship God in every aspect, in every area of life, and we experience God in every aspect, in every area of life, as we lift him up and make him the central of everything we do. And what's so incredible about being rescued for God's glory is that we live for glory. Whether it's for our own glory and trying to elevate ourselves and become the best top earner in our career, whether it's trying to validate ourselves by showing the world around us, look how good of a mom or dad I am, whether it's being the best student or the best partner, we all try to glorify ourselves and elevate ourselves only to realize that our pursuit of glory isn't setting us free. It's actually keeping us in bondage. Because now it requires a a certain level of effort and achievement and energy to sustain that. Because the minute it begins to deplete, we feel empty. What's so liberating about living for the glory of God and worshiping him and making him central is that the more we glorify him, the more freedom we experience. Because we're living the way we were designed to live in community with him. Rescued for God's glory, but uh, one thing that I want to spend the rest of our time in is rescued for God's mission. You see, the God who saves and sets free also sins. The God who saves, rescues, 
sends us to be rescuers. The powerfully rescued become powerful rescuers. And this is the idea, the the, the pattern that we see in scripture is that we're not just set free and rescued for ourselves. We're set free and rescued so that we can go embody the freedom that we found in Jesus to others and share with them. Look at the hope and look at the life and look at the power that's found in Christ. I see you drinking from a thousand different wells trying to be satisfied and you look thirsty. Taste this water that never runs dry. The powerfully rescued become powerful rescuers. The woman at the well is powerfully rescued and set free from being identified with her sin. And she becomes a powerful rescuer as she goes and tells all the village what Jesus has done for her. Peter is powerfully rescued from fear and shame after rejecting Jesus. When Jesus meets him on the shore to restore him and Peter becomes a powerful rescuer as he walks in the power of the Holy Spirit to build God's church and bring God's message of healing and restoration to all those broken by sin. The powerfully rescued become powerful rescuers. The man Paul himself, he who we're reading about, is powerfully rescued from his endless attempts to justify himself, to earn God's favor, to find hope for transformation in himself. And he realizes that Jesus, the powerful rescuer, removes the guilt, removes the condemnation of sin by way of the cross. And he becomes a powerful rescuer who proclaims the gospel of grace and peace. The powerful, powerfully rescued become powerful rescuers. And this isn't just the story of people that we read in the scriptures. This still happens today. The addicted who are powerfully rescued by Jesus become powerful rescuers as they embody the freedom that is available because Jesus has rescued and set them free. The hopeless who are powerfully rescued by Jesus become powerful rescuers as they show the world a hope and life that can be found in Jesus. The lonely who are powerfully rescued by Jesus and brought into his family become powerful rescuers as they become mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who refuse to see people do life alone. The angry who are powerfully rescued by Jesus become powerful rescuers as they display the freedom and self-control that's found in Jesus. The insecure and the fearful, plagued by darkness, who are powerfully rescued by Jesus, the light of the world, become powerful rescuers as they display the light and strength and courage and victory over darkness that's found in Jesus. The powerfully rescued become powerful rescuers. You see, church, this is an invitation, one, to be rescued. To be rescued from sin. To be rescued from ourselves to be rescued for worship, to be rescued for mission. And second, this is a commission to rescue. Who needs rescue in your life? Who will be rescued from hopelessness through you pointing them to the powerful hope that's found in Jesus? Who will be rescued from loneliness because you showed them God's vision for family and invited them to be a part of it? Who will be rescued from the poison of unforgiveness because you chose to be the vessel of reconciliation? Who will be rescued from death because you chose to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God? This is an invitation to be rescued. This is a commission to go rescue. Let's close in prayer.